Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, I was just going to compliment you as well, Julie, in terms oh, go of on, then. the role go on. that. <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie, sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Josh Duick. In 2004, he was paralyzed from the waist down in a ski accident. With the support of his now wife, Lacey, he embraced the challenges he faced. In 2009, he was the Paralpine World Champion. He went on to win silver at the Vancouver 2010 Paralympics and a gold medal at the X Games in 2011. In 2012, he made history by becoming the first person to ever land a flip in a sit-ski. This accomplishment even earned him a guest spot on the Ellen DeGeneres Show. At the Sochi Paralympics in 2014, he won a silver medal followed by a gold in the Super Combined and became Canada's flag bearer. Since his retirement from competing, Josh has dedicated himself to his wife and two kids, as well as furthering opportunities for other like-minded athletes. He leads the British Columbia Freestyle Ski Association and has been appointed the chef de mission for the 2022 Paralympic Games in Beijing. Josh and Lacey support several nonprofit organizations, including Spinal Cord Injury BC, High Fives Foundation, Live It Love It Foundation, and others. His award-winning documentary entitled Freedom Chair is definitely worth the watch. Josh is as fun as he is inspiring. We had an amazing time talking with them, and we hope you enjoy listening in. It's coming. It's coming. Oh, there you are. Hello, hello. 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 Aloha. Hello. Aloha. Where's home for you guys? Lethbridge, Alberta. Oh, nice, nice. How's winter been for you guys? Oh, we had that cold snap. Did you have that cold snap too? A little bit, yeah. I don't think we got them as fierce as Alberta, but minus 20-ish for about a week, which is all right. I actually don't mind the cold and dry and clear. I prefer that over kind of the minus two and dank. Oh, yeah. So that doesn't affect your skiing or anything, hey? You're still out there? Well, work and kids, that affect my ability to go (laughs) skiing more than temperatures. I actually, I've never minded the cold. That was something that I enjoyed and I don't know, the, the challenge of, and it's always quiet. When it's like minus 20, minus 30, and sometimes even colder, nobody shows up. So it's really a beautiful experience on the mountains without uh, the crowds. Yeah. Nice. So what's your role at Silver Star right now? Uh, there's no role. Uh, I, I ski. I take my kids up there. That's about it. I like. I have, I guess, some unofficial capacity, I guess, as being mm-hmm. an ambassador for the hill, but that's about that's about that. So your job isn't Silver Star? I thought your job was with Silver Star. It's not. No, no. Oh. Um, primary role is executive director for Freestyle BC. Oh. So I govern the the sport as a whole, the coach, official, and event development, and our two high-performance teams. Wow. That would be my Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, and then the kind of part-time gig is the team captain or chef demission role for Beijing. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you're a busy guy. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, yeah, no worries. I'm only as busy as I choose to be, I suppose. Yeah, I like what I do, so I'm pretty fortunate that way. That is awesome. Are you coaching both para and able body? Um, not involved in any coaching directly. I, I've made an effort before in the past, but I, I feel like I'm too abstract to be an effective coach. I'm more like, feel your breath, man. Mm. Connect with the trees, dude. And um, <laughs> figuratively, that not works literally. Well for some people, and it certainly worked well for me, but uh, it's not really the most technical or tactical approach to coaching. No, I just, I'm administration. I oh, literally okay. spend my day behind the laptop and coordinating all the coaches around the province or the coach development clinics or the events and the officials training and all that stuff. So it's mm-hmm. uh, spreadsheets and reporting yeah. and grant applications and scheduling and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Did you do admin yeah. style stuff before your accident? No, no, this was like 
the the last thing that I would ever imagine myself doing back to the uh, more shamanistic approach to the mountains and the outdoors. I feel very much at home in nature and not in front of a computer screen. So this was a little bit of my brand drying up in 2018. And at the same time, an opportunity for me to try something new, which was uh, the administration role. And I knew deep down in my heart that I wanted to find a way to give back to sport in some way, shape or form. And both of those two things collided at the same time. A little bit of my speaking and ambassadorial work was slowing down, which is to be expected after multiple years in retirement. And then this came up and I really liked the board of directors and my history was in freestyle. So it lent itself really nicely. And it's been a very steep and uncomfortable learning curve for me, Mm -hmm. but nearing three years into my tenure, I guess, and starting to feel a little bit of momentum and less anxiety every time I open up my laptop or go to work, if you will. Well, it's a good thing you have transferable skills. You're good with steep learning curves <laughs> and uncomfortable curves and also with some momentum. So this all sounds like it uh, it can transfer right over. Nice connections and good analogies there. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll bring it all home. I am interested, you, you being chef for the upcoming Beijing Winter Paralympics, how did that come into play? Back to that sense of duty and wanting to get back into sport. I applied for that role in, I think, probably 2016 or 17 for the Games in Pyeongchang. Uh, I was not selected, and that was a bit of a gutting experience. But Mm. at the same time, I I don't think I realized what I was signing myself up for until I got to the the interview process. And I was like, oh, (laughs) all right, this is a a pretty full-on position. Uh, And then I had the pleasure of observing that role because I was able to get into support the teams in Beijing through a couple of different roles with the International Paralympic Committee and CBC. So I watched the chef in action and had uh, an opportunity to take a few notes. And when it came back to the application process, I'm not sure if I was just that much more experienced coming into this term for the games in Beijing, or if a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want this job right now. (laughs) Um, Probably a mix of both, right? But whatever it was, maybe it was my persistence or perseverance, but uh, they decided that they would take a chance on me. And here we go. And what excites you about being chef? The challenge and specifically the challenge in our climate right now. There's a lot of conversation around boycotting. There's conversation around COVID and sending uh, athletes that have compromised immune systems over overseas at this point in time. Of course, Black Lives Matter and the BIPOC movement here in Canada is uh, quite significant and also allowing athletes to use their podium literally and figuratively to speak to the causes that matter most to them uh, are taking center stage for very good reason. And through all of those, I think sport is, is and needs to maintain priority for the athletes and for Canadians. And so I want to make sure that like those before me, I can hold that space and kind of be that insulation for the athletes to stay focused on the matters that uh, matter most to them and also the sport. And I think now more than ever, it's relevant uh, for sport to be at the forefront because we've seen over generations that athletes have the capacity to motivate and inspire Canadians and people around the world to be a little bit better and Mm -hmm. uh, focus on healthy, physical, mental well-being. And uh, right now, um, as we're all cooped up Mm. to some degree, shape, or form, um, we need that motivation and inspiration more than ever. So it's uh, an honor to serve in this role. And I think it's the challenge that really drew me into it. 
I think you're a great selection for it. Aw, thank you. <laughs> We've been doing a bit of binging on Josh Duick. You have lots of information out there. It's awesome. The, the documentary is epic. Your TED Talk. You've been doing some uh, promo videos with Silver Star and, and that Unbreakable um, promo. Awesome. I love what you're doing. I love the message. I can hear it in your heart. And as somebody who also lives with a disability and, and is trying to raise a family and, and grow healthy, active kids, but also be part of a movement and try to share... I do feel a lot of connection with you. Thank you. Um, I'm sorry that you had to binge on my stories. Uh, you might appreciate them in a different lens than I do. I'm obviously from an athletic perspective, always our own worst critic. But I so appreciate the time that you guys are taking to chat with myself and so many other great Canadians to bring our stories to the forefront. And kudos to you on uh, being able to do that while training during a pandemic for the games in Tokyo. I, I'm sure that you don't want me to point the microphone at you right now, but at some point I'd love to learn a little more about you and maybe we can through this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a two-way conversation here. Three-way now. Look at this. Whoop, whoop. Three, three you way. guys are so pro. I love it. This is uh, <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work. And although my partner is not beside me right now, she's out with the kids. I know how much oh, yeah. effort it does take to, to raise an athlete. They say it takes a village yeah. to raise a child. And I think the same rings true for athletes and the support network that they need. And it starts at home. Absolutely. We actually want to bring her into the conversation um, oh, in for sure. name because that's a huge part of our story. And that teamwork absolutely makes the dream work. And, and that's, yeah, that's another connection we feel with you guys is that we have that in common for sure. That is mm. the teamwork. How old are your kids now? Nova's seven and Hudson's four. So oh, they're older than I thought. Okay. So your eldest is the same age as our youngest. Okay. Our, our oldest is nine. And our nine? youngest is seven and a half. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. I, I feel like, and people have told me this is the, the glory years um, mm. that we're, oh. we're moving into. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Seriously. It keeps getting better. I've been taking the kids on solo ski trips like on, by myself. No, it's a challenge for anybody. I think I see other parents of all sorts of abilities, just getting them to the hill and keeping them motivated outside is a challenge into itself. And uh, so kudos to you for making the effort because it's not easy. And as you likely know, it's totally worth it. No, yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, they're way better than me. I, I was telling Lowell, I'm like, oh, I just wish I got that feeling that they got when they go super fast because they just want to bomb all the way down. But I, you know, have fear. And Lowell's like, well, you do probably get the same feeling, but they just like it. <laughs> we can learn. It might take a little more time. They don't have that thing that we develop over time, which is trauma. And uh, of course, that can help protect us from incurring it again in life. But at the same time, it has the capacity to hold us back and I know watching my kids ski, I'm, I'm a lot more conservative in my approach to their play in the mountains than I am my own, for sure. Like, I don't want to say that I'm reckless, but I for sure hammer on the gas pedal all the time. And uh, I see them picking up speed. I'm like, slow down, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were going to ask you, if, if your parenting is a little different than how you uh, treat yourself on the ski hill. <laughs> I uh, would profusely apologize to my parents, and I do through prayer on a regular basis, uh, they're no mm. longer with us on planet Earth, but I can't imagine what I put them through in my lifetime and in their lifetime because I for sure took a lot of risk, albeit calculated most of the time, clearly not all of the time. And so for them to have witnessed and still been my champions and cheerleaders and mm. as they said, number one fans, and I believe that mm. uh, oh, awesome. must have been hard to watch, especially after my injury. As a parent, I'm ironically super conservative. And I don't know if it's just because of what I've been through or also a part of my limited mobility that I'm as conservative with their approach to activity. But I really have to restrain myself and just let them be and not mm -hmm. project my fears on them. Whereas my wife, 
Lacey is far more conservative in her actions and far more liberal in parenting. She's like, lighten up. They're kids. I'm like, nah, it's too fast. <laughs> you mentioned your parents and they're no longer with us. They mm. sounds like they were really big influences on your life. What was the number one thing you learned from each of your mom and your dad? Great question. Appreciate you asking. Mom, uh, I would say would be willpower and determination. And she had this gentle way about her. I don't always live any of those attributes. Well, maybe willful. That's for sure. I I definitely live willful in spades. Being patient and gentle is something that I need to work on every day. And mom just lived that through and through. She was such a kind and soft-hearted person. It was something that I didn't always appreciate, but what kid does in real time. Mm -hmm. Uh, My dad would be work ethic and I think service. He Mm -hmm. lived to serve others. And he did so right till the day that he died. He, <laughs> funny dad story, but he, um, you know, had a pretty modest income and uh, income and CRA audited him uh, just a year before he passed and couldn't believe how much he was giving to charity mm. uh, of like a $30,000 salary. 15 was going to charity uh, oh, wow. every year. And um, I, I questioned him as well. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, how's that working? I'm like, you realize I will inherit your debt. And uh, <laughs> oh. he had incurred $98,000 on the line of credit and had a $100,000 life insurance policy. And so it went scratch. And he made sure that um, oh. there was enough in place for my mom to be taken care of in his passing. And uh, he, he nailed it perfectly. Although I didn't oh, wow. see it at the time. And I challenged him a few times. And so yeah. did CRA. My dad was a man of hard work and service and my mom will and Mm. kindness and gentleness. So I do my best to live those. Some of them come too easy. I love Mm -hmm. to work and I'm pretty darn willful, Mm. but I could be for sure giving myself into service more and being Mm. a bit kinder. Great lessons. Thank you for asking and letting me remember. Yeah, Yeah. lessons learned. It's we are a product of our upbringing and and our story definitely involves our parents and sometimes they don't get the accolades that they deserve and I know for my mom and my dad to see me go blind and to see me struggle has been heartache for them at times and so to have a child who doesn't always fit in or who struggles or is going through pain and as a parent all you really want to do is have them be okay Mm. I can imagine how that period of time in, in your parents life was pretty hard. Lowell's eye disease is genetic and his grandpa went completely blind by age 40 Before he passed away, nearly every time he saw Lowell, he apologized for passing along his blindness. Mm. Heartbreaking. Yeah, I I, um, March 8th marks the anniversary to when I broke my back. And, you know, kind of inside, we call it the indie day. I'm not dead yet because most people that have incurred a spinal cord injury may have come close to death as well. Mm. And on the indie day, my mom would always be just so wrought with emotion. Part of it was joy. A small part of it was joy for how, how far I've come mm-hmm. and what I've been able to accomplish and, and all these great things that we have as Canadians that we can access to be able to flourish no matter how we get around. However, she was filled with a lot more sadness because she, mm. she knows the boy that was once and uh, the things that I can no longer do. And being a person of the outdoors, not being able to hike or climb or just get around some challenging terrain the way I used to, or, or, and probably a million other reasons. Mom had a lot more insight than that. I'm just right on the surface right now, but uh, it's tough. I I can't imagine. And as being a parent now, you of course never want anything tragic to happen to those that you love the most. You don't want to see it happen to anybody, No. but when it's your own flesh and blood. uh, Yeah. The hardest grief is your own, right? That's just, that's how we're wired. And for her to have that grief of the loss of her son's health and kind of the future and things that she had dreamed of, but also to 
to be grieving your future and, mm. and a lot of that for you. So you were all on a journey together to find hope and to move through. And, and I heard in some of your interviews, you used the word guilt through that period of time. Mm -hmm. How do you reflect with that word now? Um, I bet it's still deep down. I don't know that I've completely resolved that. Uh, however, uh, I, I'm coming to a place in life where things happen for a reason. And I can accept that in my journey. But the guilt that I held was a lot to do with the kids and the people that were closest in my life at that time that were impacted by my actions. So my mom and dad, my, my family, my sisters, and then of course, all the kids that were there that day and, and that I would been working with in the sport of freestyle skiing and mm -hmm. my selfish action in that moment to go show off in front of a bunch of kids for no good reason cost all of us something that day for me, the use of my legs and for them, mm -hmm. uh, they incurred a great deal of trauma that we, you know, one, one bad choice. Uh, something that we all have to live with. And for a while I felt terrible because some of the kids stopped skiing mm -hmm. or, or they completely changed their approach to skiing, um, yeah. which just devastated me, right? Like mm -hmm. if anything, I just wanted to encourage people to be active and outdoors. Yeah. And then I took that from them for no good reason. So some of their own traumas. Yeah. I bet when you got on the sit ski though, I bet that re-inspired them. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I made Vernon my home because that's mm. where I was coaching. And I wanted to be near all the, the kids and the families that I was most directly connected to at the time of my accident. And mm. for sure, like seeing them shortly thereafter throughout the summer and then, of course, back into the winter months, I think it made a huge difference in their lives. Yeah. However, I, I had the good fortune of working with a sports psychologist through my entire sport career. Mm. And John and I had ventured to write a book and he was going to co-author and, and we've still got a lot of material that's sitting and one day we might get to completing it, but we both, I'm going to own this one. I drifted into other motivations yeah. and so let that project sit and rest. However, um, John went and interviewed a lot of the kids and my family and thank cool. goodness that he did because he's probably mm. got some archival material from my mom and dad. Yeah, uh, that uh, will probably bring more than a tear to my eye. Mm -hmm. However, he, he used this brief analogy. He's like, when digging deep about the day of or the moment of my accident, he said 100% across the board, everybody thought they were doing okay. And it was like pulling off a Band-Aid and finding yeah. the wound or the trauma was yeah. still very much infected. And mm -hmm. so uh, he knew maybe the right questions to ask. I haven't seen those interviews. I haven't heard mm -hmm. those interviews. But um, when I asked him how they went, uh, it came to no real surprise to me that we're still all processing in some way, shape, or form yeah. the, the actions and the decision I made that, that afternoon. Mm -hmm. We're alluding to the story, and, and your story has been told very well in the documentaries, and we're going to link to that in the show notes and, and description. But for those who may not have seen the documentary, who don't know your story, can you give us a brief kind of run up into that in that day of so we have a bit of context around what we're speaking about no no there's nothing brief about when i tell stories i'll do my best though oh no then forget the word so brief all hot air dude it's ridiculous oh, oh I, we I love apologize hot air. to the listeners in advance the um the cole's notes uh was 23 at the time coaching a group of up-and-coming athletes in the sport of freestyle skiing and after doing an inspection or or speed check on the in run to what we call a large kicker, which was about 50 feet back from the beginning of the landing hill and is about 15 feet in height. And the, the in run speed was pretty slow. So I went to the, the very top of the in run. And as I was coming back down, it, it's like uh, my skis had set the track uh, in the, the little 
I love speed check. And I was going way too fast and ended up going off the jump anyhow and over-rotated uh, front foot, overshot the landing hill and landed pretty heavy on my chest, which forced me into a scorpion and dislocated my back. And Do you remember that? Like yeah. everything up until the actual moment of blackout? Yeah, yeah. And uh, wow. I have footage of it as well, which was really affirming for me. I didn't see it for a couple of years post-injury. But uh, eventually I was given that footage and I chose to check it out. And uh, my memory was very accurate to the moment mm-hmm. of my accident, which was relieving, really, because you always tell yourself fishing stories. It was this big and I was going <laughs> that fast. And in reality, um, it, it was. I wow. fell from over 10 stories onto my chest and absolutely yeah. crumpled on impact. And back to the indie comment, uh, lucky to be alive for sure. Yeah. It was a beautiful move you're trying to do, the Superman front flip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, another point, and it's not brought up in any documentaries, but I have since come to really appreciate acknowledging how ignorant I was at that time. I talk about ego versus intuition. That was certainly a part of it. Uh, my ego was wanting to show off in front of the kids and my friends. My intuition was mm. screaming loud and clear, don't hit the jump, don't hit the jump, you're going too fast. But further to my intuition was the master coach that was on site that day, Woody. And Woody said, hey, um, whatever you do, we've knocked down the lip. So you're going to be going further down the landing hill. So whatever you do, don't do a front flip. And oh. of course, 23-year-old me is like, fuck you, pardon my language. Um, <laughs> no, that's fine. Defiant by nature. Yeah. And um, that, mm. that really bit me in the butt. And mm. I've, I've had a chance. It was like last year or maybe a year and a half ago, I saw Woody for the first time in 15 years. Very randomly, I was riding my bike through my hand bike through the trails in Whistler and he was getting ready for work at like six in the morning. And I hear this, Dewey, and he's got an unmatched voice. And I'm just like, Woody. And he's like, and I just looked at him and I started bawling. And I'm like, you know, you know what's up. And I am so sorry. I am so sorry for what I did that day. And um, he just gave me a big old hug, man. Pre-COVID days when hugging wasn't taboo. Yeah. Yeah. He just gave me a big old hug and he's like, it's okay, bro. It's okay. Uh, and uh, at least for me, it felt like I was able to put that to rest a little bit. One of the things we really wanted to connect with you on was your love story. I love love stories. Who doesn't? Yeah, the quality <laughs> the quality of our lives are determined by the quality of our relationships. And so we already see how close you were with your parents and, and Woody and the crew and, and people seem to be a huge impact on your life and, and both ways. Let us know your love story. Well, hopeless romantic for sure. And I don't know how good I was at relationships in my younger years. I do adore my parents through and through. But when I was growing up, I was a punk ass. And uh, I wasn't super kind to him. Like there would be, this is pre-cell phone days, right? In the nineties and early two thousands. And there would be periods of probably a year where my parents didn't know where I was or if I was alive, I was for sure defiant to my core. And I had some pretty significant anger issues and probably some mental health things going on in my early life. But I I sure did. My parents know that I love them even through the, the hard times and the love story that we're alluding to, or at least the one that I'd like to tell, given that I was a bit of a hopeless romantic in some shapes, was a girl that I'd met just prior to my injury. And that's my wife today. That's Lacey. I met her up at a ski hill at some staff orientation day and immediately was fixed on her and in love and in lust. And she could see that I was a little bit of a loose cannon. So she kept me <laughs> at bay. But 
<laughs> I kept persisting. And so there was chemistry there, but there was not a lot of traction, at least on my end. Life kind of pulled us apart. I moved up north in the valley. She stayed down south and she heard about my injury by a friend of a friend of a friend because that's how word traveled prior to Facebook. Mm-hmm. And she chatted with her mom briefly and said, remember that boy, uh, he's had a pretty bad accident. And her mom fully supported her quitting her job, getting a one-way bus ticket and coming to Vancouver on a whim with no timeline set. And a week later, asked her to be my girlfriend. And Aww. the rest is history. We got married a few wow. years later and uh, now have two beautiful kids. And uh, it's been 18 years that she's been putting up with me and also uh, elevating me and supporting me in so many different ways. I- I've been learning, not very good at it, but I've been learning to return that and reciprocate it. Mm-hmm. So thankful that she's been patient uh, with this very slow learner. 18 years, us too. We've been together for 18 years as well. Oh, That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you too. <laughs> so what do you think it would have taken had you not had an accident for her to come chasing after you? I'm not sure that she would have, to be honest. I think oh. my behavior needed to be curbed. There was something very defiant and very, I guess, selfish might be the word in terms of how I was operating. I think had very little regard for my own life and well-being. And I, that's what I refer to when I, when I say selfish, because mm. I, I wasn't really understanding how much my self-destruction was impacting the people around me. So whether it was uh, partying to no end or just taking unusual risk in the mountains, um, mm-hmm. it was torturing my parents, I'm sure of that, even though they never said it. I'm sure it was absolutely torturing them. And uh, she was smart enough to see that that's not the type of guy she wanted to be with. It was um, when all of my friends from uh, whether it was like my time up in the Yukon or time on the ski circuit that came to visit me after my accident that I think kind of sold Lacey on. Actually, this kid's got a good heart. He might be uh, might be full of piss, but he's got a good heart. And mm. she's helped me to understand that and also kind of chip away at some of the concrete that I've built around the old heart box. Wow, she sounds amazing. Mm. She's my warrior and I love her to bits. She's a rock. She sure is. So I is somebody with a disability, right? I felt that I've brought my family down, right? That I, I can't drive, I can't do many things, right? And if I focus on the accounts, I, it really can bring me down. Mm-hmm. And then that guilt that sometimes I can't be the husband that I want to be for Julie. I can't be the dad that I want to be. And then Julie does this amazing thing where she flips it around and tells a different story. We haven't done motivational speaking since COVID, but when we did it before, he would always take the time to thank me and thank all caregivers. And I'm just really awkward with compliments in the first place and in front of people. But I'm like, it's it's my identity now. Like it's my, or it's part of my identity. It's it's my role. And I see it as a positive thing. And while if there was a cure for his vision that came up, that'd be awesome. But I think I would struggle for a little bit. Like I'd have to, okay, like I need a new role. Like what's what's my role here? So I'm, I'm sure that Lacey can identify with that. Mm-hmm. And I can identify with Lowell. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I do my best not to harbor those feelings of guilt or mm-hmm. how I hold the family back, but they come up. And mm-hmm. when they do, they uh, they for sure show their ugly head. And uh, that can be so challenging for Lacey and the kids when, when I'm acting out of those places of fear or anxiety. Mm-hmm. I but tell yeah, as, to, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, I was just going to compliment you as well, Julie, in terms oh, go of on, then. the role go on, that, <laughs> <laughs> that our partners play. And also your awareness of knowing um, your identity and how you've attached to that um, and how that that's a good thing, but also a great thing to be aware of in terms of who we become and the identities that we create. Because I, I would imagine from 40 years of life experience, we, we shed those identities time and again throughout our lived experience. 
mm-hmm. um, and deep down someplace we have a core but we mm-hmm. tend to put on different cloaks or identities yeah. throughout it that gives us strength and affirmation if you will and it again those are great things like you know what your core is and for Lacey she knows very well that her core is a caretaker she's always played that role as a middle child mm-hmm. right like yeah. just look at it from a basic perspective she's a middle child like she's always fit that bill within her family and she still continues to play that role obviously a much lesser degree everybody's grown up now but at family gatherings, you, you guarantee she's like in the mix all the time. That's what she loves. It brings mm-hmm. her joy. I didn't realize that at the time, but it's clearly a perfect characteristic um, for a person who is, mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's lopsided in responsibility in terms of roles we play, but she definitely has to play a pretty significant role in our family in order to to manage it. Not just my disability, but certainly that, uh, but mm-hmm. also just the demand that I put on my time because I love to work. And yeah. in the position that we're in, being athletes, ambassadors, speakers, and champions for change, that's a pretty demanding role to be in, for sure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like I just get to ride Lowell's coattails. Like he's the one who has to like train two to four hours really hard in our little garage gym and compete. And he's the one that's doing this blind, but I get to kind of reap the rewards of that. Like I get to meet amazing para athletes like yourself, all these other people that he's racing against. It's one of the reasons why I, well, we, but I brought it up first, wanted to start this <laughs> podcast is because Lowell started in triathlon and I remember sitting in the bleachers watching everybody cross the line and I just wanted everybody to stop and get a microphone and just tell us your story. Like, I want to know everybody's story. Like, was this acquired? Were you born with this? What mindset did you have to get through this? I think that's a great idea. And living with that curious mindset, such a beautiful thing. Mm. And it can be a sensitive subject. Not everybody wants to ask those questions. And kudos to you for being brave and being curious and telling the stories of so many great Canadian athletes from all walks of life. Yeah, there's so many athletes. And, and part of why we ask about Lacey and, and parents and other relationships too, because the athletes do a lot of the work, yes, and they and they get a lot of accolades and get medals and the stories are often connected around them. But what we want to do too is highlight the relationships and the importance of lessons learned from these other people in your life. I like to hear the stu- to the story of the doctor who gave, gave you hope. But before you tell that story, this idea of the caregivers, the people in our life that don't get as much of the front stage, all the volunteers who help us do our sport, Para sport takes a lot of volunteers and extra support and accommodations. And there are so many people in our story that don't always get the credit. And so I also want to state that through this podcast is, is thanks. Thanks to Julie. Thanks to Lacey. Thanks to all the people in our lives who are helping Parasport happen because it's making a huge difference. Okay. The other benefit of you two, Josh and Lowell, for your kids, I think it is amazing for your kids, Josh, to grow up with a dad who is so determined and resilient and that you're spreading this message of hope and you're inspiring all these people, not just Canadians. You were on Ellen. Do they know how big of a deal Ellen is? (laughs) Maybe one day if they go through the archives, they might might recognize that. They just know me as, well, Nova a little bit at school now because I've presented there. She's getting a bit of an awareness that dad's in a unique position. But most of those stories came to light prior to the kids being born. And Mm. uh, again, I just get to be dad. (laughs) which is great like she did come like literally a few weeks ago she's like dad are you famous i'm like for being your dad she's like yeah but no the kids at school somebody said they're and i'm just like that is a part of my story yeah and uh, so i think it'll come to light a little more as they grow 
bit older, but for now I get to just play the role of dad and office jock, which again, it took me a bit speaking of guilt and shame. I was like, Oh, what kind of role model will I be for my parents? Like the last thing I want them to think is being behind a computer screen is normal behavior. But if I was to allude and show you more of my office space, it's actually a furnace room. <laughs> so nice. I, oh. I picked the least desirable room in the house and called that my office. So <laughs> steampunk office work <laughs> yeah, totally but uh, I, again just want to echo your comments Lowell on the, the teams behind the individual and I use the analogy of a band right you've always got the, the front person the lead singer but in order to make music you need a whole band and I could list off countless coaches and I'll name a couple right now JS Labrie and Rob Kober before that excellent coaches that figured out a way to understand my algorithm and temper some of my uh, vices, if you will, but also use them as my virtues so that I could excel in the field of play. So their empathy, their understanding and their commitment to sport. And then of course the countless other people, uh, the techs, the physios, the sports psychs, and the list goes on and on and on and on that create the story of an athlete. And I I feel fortunate that I got to play the role and, and be the story of an athlete for a period of time. But again, it's the, the countless people. And then you've got your family that's invested in your friends. And then the collective voice of the fans across the country and around the world that believe in the power of sport. So it's a, a great blessing and a huge fortune to be able to play that role for a period of time. Amazing. The the footage of you doing the flip on the sit ski, was that in 2012? Mm-hmm. Okay, that that footage, I got so emotional, just everyone cheering for you. Aw, like they just, they really felt that, like they were part of that journey. And that it was like a success for everyone. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful experience and a very hand-picked crew of kids and, and people that I considered to be mentors that I grew up with. So longtime friends that were part of my ski journey growing up in Kimberly and throughout my freestyle career and uh, hand-picked so that I could really trust them in a really stressful environment. It was also deeply emotional not just for the the overcoming of that barrier and being the first person to go upside down on a sit ski, but it was also pretty special times for my buddy Rory. I, well, actually, I wouldn't say special times. Like I'd say extraordinarily heavy times because he had just lost his partner. And oh, uh, wow. the, the whole two weeks prior was when she had passed and mm. um, superheroes don't pass. So it completely caught all of us off guard when Sarah Burke passed away. It, it was a day that I was rehearsing on the airbag and mm-hmm. I'd, cu- I'd come back up to the airbag from uh, just doing a little refresh down in the, the village up in, in Blackcomb. And I uh, came back and everybody was just stunned. Uh, the, the crew that I was working with was like, um, I was like, what's up? They're like, Sarah passed. Oh. And uh, they're like, we can call it. We we don't need to, you know, we're, we're all a little bit shook up right now. And I just looked up and and thought, well, what would Sarah do right now? What would she want us to do? And she was all about progression. And it literally, it was like she was with us and holding space. And you'll you'll notice at the end of that video, it says, let love lift us higher. And we dedicated that whole project to Sarah. And um, two weeks later, maybe three weeks later is when we actually had a, a window of opportunity to take it onto snow. And that was Rory's first time back on snow. Uh, since the accident and there was brief moments of levity in that day where he had forgotten about how heavy life can be and about the the magnitude of his loss and uh, we got to see the little kid and bushy come out and rip around and he was my sled driver and i uh 
never forget. And he actually told the story quite well in a, a written article, but I bailed behind Basitsky and, or, or behind a sled and he's just lighting up the sled to try and get up over this ridge. And he's like, there's refrigerator sized cubes of snow. Cause it was pretty heavy, like dumping all over me. And most people in their right mind would have been petrified when they looked back and saw me buried in snow. And he was in stitches <laughs> laughing until he, uh, he realized that he couldn't wait to go home and tell Sarah. And then of course, uh, yeah, the grief hit went him back out again. Yeah. But she was a pioneer and innovator and arguably the greatest of her time. And, and still mm. uh, nine years later, I think lessons are being learned from the impact that she had in the sport of freestyle skiing and no, no efforts are done single-handed and nor would Sarah ever want that kind of credit, but she was probably the most impactful person in bringing women's half pipe to the forefront, uh, forefront mm. and to the Olympic games in Sochi 2014. Wow. Wow. Awesome. A legacy. Yeah. yeah. She did well with the time that she had. She didn't waste any of it. Uh, no. Hardest working, disciplined athlete that I think our sport has known, but yet the kindest, gentlest person that always had time, always made you feel so special. Like you're the only person in the world and you really mm. mattered. Mm. And that's such a gift for, oh. for a person who's in such a, a position yeah. of celebrity and demand yeah. to mm-hmm. make you feel that way. And she made everybody feel that way. The power of presence. Mm. It's a gift. Remembering mm. Sarah is always a beautiful thing. And Rory reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. And it helped me actually in the grieving of my parents is to always let the stories of the loved ones that are no longer with us still rise to the surface. Absolutely. And I just so thanks Sarah and Rory for their contributions. Sarah in, in her lifetime and Rory's can continued contributions to being curious mm-hmm. explorers of the great unknown. And uh, yeah. love those two to bits with all of my heart. We incorporate awesome. them into our stories. We incorporate their lessons, their passions, their way of living, and we honor them as we move forward in life. And that's a beautiful thing you're doing through through your storytelling. Thank you for sharing the story of Sarah. Was she from Kimberley as well? No, I think Midland, Ontario. I don't oh, okay. know exactly, but she was an Ontario girl. Because we have um, we have a friend in common, Josh. I learned last night as I was texting her from Kimberley, Tasha. Nice. She, yeah, said, yeah. That, she wow. said that you have a funny story of you guys being biology or chemistry partners yeah, she called in that high school. Now, did she? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's given us the dirt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I already explained that as a little bit of a riffraff growing up. And <laughs> although I think it didn't fit well with her moral compass, she let me borrow some notes during critical exams uh, in real time <laughs> to make sure that I passed my tests without doing all the same studies that the other kids were doing. Yikes. Thanks, Tash, for kind of setting me up there and also for all your help getting me through grade 11 biology. (laughs) Speaking of good hearts. Yeah. Yeah. She's Mm -hmm. awesome. She said to say hi. She is so lovely and comes from a great family. Her twin, Simon, is like one of the most inspirational and impactful artists. I've seen his art. Wow. Her parents are just good stock. Good stock. Yeah. Good people. Well, we have a segment here that I'd like to try with you. Straight up ripped off of Fred Penner. So we're, we're calling this right now... <laughs> Word Bird. Word Bird. <laughs> what Fred Penner would do, he's going to climb through this tree and interact with the kids and through the TV set. And then at one point, the Word Bird would bring up a word and he'd define it. And so this athlete edition is, oh, I want to check in on the mindset and kind of how these words impact us and how they set us apart and what stories are there. So... I'm going to give you a handful of words and I'd like you to kind of free associate and just kind of define it in your terms and how it fits with your life and experience. Okay. So give it a shot. It's really built up. It's actually not that hard. It's just, just like a word. What does this word mean to you, basically? <laughs> but Fred Penner just makes it so much cooler. You did build it up. I feel like I'm in the gate and I have a little <laughs> bit of butterflies going on right now. So 
You you may lose a gold medal. If you don't get all of these right, I'll take one of your gold medals. Not just kidding. I've only got one, so it's up for grabs. Let's go. (laughs) No, I'm not going to touch one until it's my own. All right. So the first word, and, and I was alluding to this earlier, but hope. A powerful tool in creating change. Cool. When was that word first instilled within you? Probably shortly thereafter my accident. And there was different hallmark adages that came to my life. Like the only difference between the possible and impossible is one's attitude. And well, you know what? Actually, boom, you've got free association. Let's talk about Dr. Smart and the role that he played. Mm. And uh, love where that just went. That's that's fun watching the brain go tick, 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 Mm -hmm. boom. So shortly after my accident, like immediately after my accident, they had brought me down to the local hospital where the GP on call uh, reviewed the x-rays and realized that he had to break it down to a 23-year-old kid that I wasn't going to walk away from this situation. And he did so with grace and humility. And in a moment's notice, he he took the medical jargon and boiled it down to, you're going to rock the world from a wheelchair. Mm. And before you know it, we'll have you back in the mountains riding a sit ski with all your friends. So in that moment, he gave me, I'll be back in the mountains, a place that I love, mm. doing something that I really enjoy and talking about identity. You know, it was a huge part of my identity and gave me purpose with the people that matter most. And so in one fell swoop, he gave me hope. Mm. Wow, and perfect. hope is a powerful tool in creating change. Absolutely, yeah. it is. Beautiful. Word number two. A plus. Just yeah. kidding. We're not grading it, but you keep your medal. <laughs> yeah. um, I was at C minus with the hallmark remark, and then it just triggered. <laughs> boom. <laughs> Second word, freedom. What does freedom mean to Josh Duick? Freedom is a word that's evolved for me over time. It was first introduced via tattoo when I was 17 on my stomach, and I thought it'd be a way to get chicks. I think I was dead wrong on that one. It just gave my friends ammunition to make fun of me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Freedom at the end of the day would be liberation from all of our trauma and uh, connection with oneness, whatever that means to you, whether you refer Mm. to that as God or the great creator or our breath or energy or the universe or whatever. I don't really care. I've referred to them all. I think uh, freedom is liberation from the trauma that, uh, that holds us back from connecting with something that is greater than ourself. Mm. Beautiful. Next word. Oh, just wait. Oh. How are you allowed to get a tattoo at 17? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, if I could tell you the name of the, the parlor in Kelowna, that might get them They'd in probably trouble. Busted. Okay. I just rolled in and, and actually I thought I was walking at the time. I walked in yeah. and just like, can I get something? And he's like, what? And I'm like, I don't know, a tattoo. And he's like, what do you want? And I'm like, uh, and I probably saw a picture on the wall that said freedom. I'm like, freedom. And it's in this old English font. It's terrible, but it is. It's not small it either, isn't it? Across like your whole. Yeah, uh, stomach. Yeah, yeah you're uh, very brave. Rib to rib. Good. Yeah, it's uh, it's basically my diaphragm and then some. It's cool mm-hmm. how meaningful it is now, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's forced a lot of introspection, yeah, and a lot of consideration, and I've watched the meaning of that word evolve many times over mm-hmm. the last twenty years since twenty two twenty. Math is not a strong suit. Twenty three years since I've had that inked on my body. Wow, and yeah, the documentary named Freedom Chair. Yeah, yeah, it seemed appropriate. I think. Uh, Mike Douglas, the guy that produced that, saw that as a pretty easy uh, connection uh, to a part of my story. And of course, that Siski provides me a great deal of freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think if I would have answered it when we filmed that, and I think I did in the the documentary, it's uh, freedom through movement, freedom in nature, freedom to connect with something, something bigger than Mm ourselves. Do you think you've inspired other 17-year-olds to get giant tattoos on their torsos? (laughs) I feel like... 
that should be a telltale sign. It's not a good way to get chicks. Uh, I think you should be attracting people from who you are, not what yeah. you wear or what you tattoo on yourself. For sure. Uh, and uh, give it a little more thought. If you really want to get freedom, power to you, but maybe put some consideration in the night before or a week before. And <laughs> I, I heard if you want a tattoo, print out what you want and put it like on the bathroom mirror, on the rear view mirror in the car, where you'd see it all the time. And if after a year you're not sick of it, then go for it. Good call. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. <laughs> a year's time for a 17 year old, though. That's yeah, that's, that's a forever. That's, a long. that's an eternity. That's yeah. an eternity. Okay, next word. You ready? Sure. Word bird. Next word. <laughs> it is disability. What does disability mean to you? Uh, I think about that word phonetically. I've dis abled a part of my body so it doesn't truly offend me i think it's one of those words that's becoming a bit more contentious right now and probably going to find its way into the dumpster um, because of maybe some uh, negative connotation that comes along with it but phonetically i'm quite good with the word disability because i've disabled a part of it i hear a lot of other funny plays on it like differently abled or whatnot and that's fine by me it's a, it's a loaded word. It I'll is a loaded word, yeah. It's interesting how focused we've become on words and their meaning mm-hmm. right now. And I think it's relevant because we've used words inappropriately in so many different mm-hmm. contexts that we have to become mindful. There's a sense of what these words mean to us and how we incorporate them into who we are. And labels can be helpful. I'm kind, I'm strong, I'm hard worker, but there's also labels that can be detrimental. I'm disabled, I can't, I'm not enough. I don't belong. We can use the power of words in helpful mm. or unhelpful ways. Mm-hmm. So having voices like yours that, that are helping us move forward with our languaging, with the meaning and purpose behind that to empower us is beautiful. I hope so. I don't know if I'm helping move forward. I'm more of a pundit. I'm very curious about the, the whole movement and, and where we need to go. Because uh, phonetically, things are changing so often mm. uh, in terms of how we label or refer to so many things around the world. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope maybe at one point we can find a place to rest where we're all comfortable with the yeah. lexicons that we use. And we, we learn from so many people that it's not mm. always what you intend. You may have a positive intention, but you're still saying the wrong thing and that can be super damaging. So yeah. uh, we do need to find a place where we're all comfortable mm. with um, the language that we use. It's yeah. very complex and ever changing. And I hope that the pendulum swing starts to slow down and we can all come to a place mm. of peace and uh, understanding with one another, whatever those languages are. And I think the authors of each particular wordage, if you will, so if it's race, then and I think those people need to lead the conversation and we we need to listen. Um, and we all mm-hmm. do, right? We're all from, coming from a background mm-hmm. and whether it's uh, gender or ability or whatever it might be, I, again, so loaded and complex. Yep. And I'm more of just like, like sit back and listen and kind of see how it goes. Okay, well, here's one that's less uh, phonetic now and a bit more of an emotion. How about how do you respond to this word? Pity. Hmm, that's a good one too. Um, doesn't seem like it has a lot of use. Pity seems kind of like uh, not a productive use of energy to me, to pity. Uh, but I wonder how closely related it is to sympathy or empathy. But I, I feel like it's probably not at all. Maybe I should have some pity for some things in life, but I'm more of let's move forward. Uh, and I don't care to be feel like I don't care when people pity me. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Do you think that sometimes people are trying to be empathic and they come across as pitying? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with that. And uh, then that can be kind of uh, disempowering yeah. for sure. 
because uh, they don't know the whole story. I think it's really important to understand the whole story before you project any of your own emotions, sympathy, empathy, or pity towards another person. When you see one piece of the story and you pity that, that's, uh, I don't know, I don't like it. I, I know. know. The, yeah. the face that you made there, that, that I was just going to tell you, Stephanie Dixon's response to that was, <laughs> she, like, she like dry heaved in her mic. <laughs> to the to the point. I like Steph for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, with this one, and, and we'll do this last word, Bird, because I hear it in the background. What does this word mean to you? Family. Family is a beautiful mess. And as I alluded in my childhood, I, I didn't have the closest of relationships with my family. It was pretty fractured and arguably quite dysfunctional. Living the life that I have and seeing most of my family now departed helps me to really appreciate how important family is and it is really all we've got now i'm on the flip side i've got a young family and uh, it's everything Mm -hmm. it's all i live for and the most important thing that i work for and Mm -hmm. it's the greatest blessing in my life is to have family yeah and uh, to have these little kids excited in the morning and uh, right till the end of the day and being able to share space and learn from and teach things with and pretty incredible they can be so funny too hey our kids make Mm -hmm. us laugh so much some of the things that come out of their mouth (laughs) yeah it's uh they're brilliant they're curious they're they're just i feel like when i say teachers like kids are where i want to be and how i think and how i feel and and how i operate they're very present Uh, when they're upset they're upset and they move forward from it there's no pity there's no regret there's no looking back it's uh, they live true to the emotion and uh, the situation that they're in yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of kids our nine-year-old wants to know from you can you go faster on a sit ski or regular skis i would think And actually, I don't even need to think about this. For sure, you can go faster on regular skis. I believe the the speed record on two skis is well over 200 kilometers an hour. Uh, For myself, I've been around 140 kilometers an hour. And then if you break it down a little bit further, it's the texture on the base of a ski that creates little air pockets in between or glide. And the more surface area you have, the more glide you have. And so two skis is greater than one. So your potential to glide and keep speed and build speed is greater on two. Okay. He will be happy to hear that because he is on two skis. (laughs) Long-winded for two skis is faster. (laughs) No, I like that. He'll like that explanation too. Um, Which reminds me of CADS. That was the first time. What does that stand for again? Canadian Association of Disabled Skiing. Are you involved with CADS? Not so much. Okay. I'm uh, very appreciative of the work that they do, but I haven't really been involved again back when I first got injured they would have been an excellent resource for me mm-hmm. to get involved with. But I was pretty defiant and didn't want to be put into a box. And I felt mm-hmm. like there was a lot more skiing out there than um, maybe what they had to offer to me at the time. You also had an Alpine community already. Yeah, yeah. And again, just kind of where I was at in life. But yeah. they, the CADS is awesome. What they've created in the last Jerry and Annie Johnston uh, from Kimberly. Wow. <laughs> founded uh, or were founding members. And I think they're actually like the founders of CADS back in the 70s. Mm. Jerry was a ski instructor at Sunshine Village, if I got the story correct. And a friend who was visually impaired wanted to learn how to ski. So he started teaching um, and created the methodology and pathway on how to work with uh, different types of skiers that want to get around the mountain. And here we go. Now we have CADS. Yeah, that's that was our first introduction to sit skiers. That's the first time we got to see them was with CADS. 
as I'm, I'm technically a volunteer because I'm, I ski with Lowell. <laughs> I wear a bright orange bib and so he can follow me, even though I don't go quite as fast as he might like. She chooses life, <laughs> which is good. It's a good person to follow. Okay. I'll, I also pilot him sometimes on the tandem bike. How fast were we going, Lowell, when... I think 82 kilometers an hour we got up to. Was that ours or are we 74? Oh, maybe so. Anyways, yeah. we were going like way too fast for me. And we were like down a windy mountain very, very fast. And so I was braking, you know, because I want to live. <laughs> and he's like, are you braking? I'm like, yes, I'm braking. He's like, go faster. I'm like, I choose life. Like we have two kids at home. I'm not going to go faster than this. And he's like, yeah, it's probably a good thing you're the pilot. <laughs> it's cute. You guys are very cute. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of fear. <laughs> So you speak, there's a couple things I want to check in with you. It's some of your mindset stuff. One is this relationship with fear, and the other one is with trusting your intuition in your heart. I've heard you speak about those in your interviews, and they're both, they really resonated with me too. So what's your relationship with fear to start? I didn't realize how much of a role fear played in my life until I retired from competitive ski racing. And it was driving back up to the ski hill. But this time to learn how to Nordic ski. And uh, day one was a little bit nervous. I'll give it that. But the, the second time I went up to the Nordic trails, I, I was thinking to myself, what's different? I feel lighter. I feel mm. a sense of calm and peace that I've never felt going to the hill before. And that was the absence of fear. Mm. And I think, you know, deep down, I knew that the, the way that I ski and putting myself in competitive situations all the time, there was an incredible amount of risk. And uh, albeit we manage that risk the best of our ability, um, the consequence of a mistake are catastrophic. And so I knew that every day going up. But again, I had uh, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and, and uh, more rage in me than fear. And so I would overcome that fear. And that became very addictive. Mm. And I wouldn't have been able to identify it that way while I was still in the, the mix, but I can look at it now and be like, wow, that was a pretty twisted relationship with fear and anger, two complementing emotions on the same kind of dark force, constantly battling back and forth. And so it was Nordic skiing that helped me understand that fear was actually very much a part of my ski story whether I like to admit it or not. And love and operating out of love and intuition, well, I think that's the, the opposite motivation and just go straight up Star Wars analogy, right? You know, which side of the force are you working with? Uh, Darth Vader or Luke Skywalker? And they're the same family, they're the same blood uh, and they live within all of us. And uh, both of them are powerful forces. It's funny, I, my, my story was a very positive story, but it was rooted in a lot of darkness. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons we're drawn to you and your story. And, and this is almost, it is a universal story back to Star Wars and back to originating aspects of most superheroes and most religions is a sense of, of that struggle. And really these, the, why we call this podcast Obstacles and Opportunities, right? Is that in sometimes those obstacles, those barriers, that's when a lot of opportunities and lessons are learned. So... Mm. For you to bring it home for us and, and kind of connect it to our theme here with obstacles and opportunities, how, how have you seen obstacles become opportunities in your life? My dad would say that the reward is intrinsic to the effort. And if the obstacle forces more effort out of us to overcome or understand or learn from whatever that challenge is, then inherent will be a greater reward. I, I look to, in my opinion, the greatest Canadian of all time, and that would be Terry Fox. And he's got a great kid's book. You may have it. You may have read it to yours, but it's the value in facing the challenge. And uh, I feel like the, the greater the challenge that we face, the greater the opportunity to learn. 
Mm. And uh, it's not always easy. It's not always fun. And often when you're deep in the trenches, you're definitely hoping, wishing, maybe even praying that uh, this challenge wouldn't be yours. But we, we often come through on the other side and we're better for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't wish that pain that you had to experience on anybody, but the lessons you've learned from it have shaped you in, in huge ways. True. Yeah. If we allow them and I'm pretty stubborn. So I think I've had to learn these lessons a few times over and over and over again. (laughs) So there's a word to the wise, eh? you know, like you can take shortcuts and just learn quickly the first time, or you can be a stubborn goat like myself and uh, take a few whippings in order to figure it out. And I'm still learning. We need to be able to make mistakes. And again, some mistakes are unpermissible. I understand that. But in general, like we we need to be able to, let's, I'll give you an example. When I grew up skiing, we would tease each other if you didn't crash. If you had a day and you didn't bail, it's kind of like, you were not trying hard enough. That's what my family says to me. (laughs) (laughs) With my little dude, Huddy, again, back to me being a very conservative parent, uh, he was bombing down the hill and I couldn't catch up and slow him down. And so I was like, he doesn't know how to stop. And like the only thing that's going to stop him is either an explosion or the patch of trees even further down. <laughs> and he did hit the neck, a uh, little cat track and fully exploded. And my heart was imploding oh. or exploding. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it wasn't happy. And uh, Lacey and I pull up and he's laying there. Skis are everywhere. Like, <laughs> Yard sale. Yard sale. Thank you. And he looks up and he's like, Falling is learning. And I was like, thank God he's okay. And he's got a good sense of humor. And uh, Uh, he's reminding me of what I was reminded of when when we were younger. And uh, we need to give ourselves space to grow. We need to be gentle with one another. We need to be kind Mm -hmm. with ourselves. And we need to do our best not to make mistakes, whatever they may be. Uh, But when we do, there's always opportunity to learn and grow. Otherwise, like how are we going to tackle these challenges that we face? We need to, with an open heart, open mind, and with empathy and kindness. The story of your son reminded me of when our eldest was three and he was riding a road bike and we were going on this path and there was like a hairpin turn right in front of a lake, like with rocks and then a lake. And we're like, slow down, slow down, slow down. And he didn't slow down. I was started to get off my bike in order to like pro- provide like first aid, but he didn't fall. He like stuck the landing and he was like, that was so scary. And we're like, oh no, he's had his first adrenaline rush. Like we are in for it. And, and he hasn't looked back since then. It's Love been, speed. Oh my word. Yeah. Yeah. You're watching with your mm. heart outside of your body. What a neat experience to be parents and mm-hmm. what what like for me it's been the greatest tool in moving myself from a place of being quite self-centered in in my general nature but also it's the nature of an athlete for better and for worse right back to the support teams mm-hmm. that it takes in order to elevate an athlete uh, it's hard not to be a bit narcissistic and albeit I felt like I was aware of it when it was happening it was still a lot deeper rooted than I could have ever mm-hmm. imagined and becoming a parent, uh, you you immediately are thrown into a world of being selfless. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I choose life. I choose life. Yeah. <laughs> you have good life. reason to choose life when there's little people <laughs> yeah. that depend on you. And that being yeah. said, I think it's relevant that we all see the world that way, whether there are blood and directly depend on us for their survival, or if it's just the general scope of humanity, it's a beautiful way to operate. Mm-hmm. took me a long time to figure that out, but I figured heck, it out. <laughs> that's life, right? Life yeah. is life. an ongoing education. It's about figuring things out. Yeah. So when we were looking up all the videos about you, I was using dictation on Apple TV and I was saying, Josh, do it. 
And it kept coming up as Josh Do It. And I, I, was, I thought it was so clever. I was like, oh my goodness, he needs a Nike sponsorship and it needs to be Josh Do It. And then I saw that your your Instagram handle is Just Do It. Is that also a play on Just Do It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nike? That okay. was for sure. I was uh, <laughs> pretty reluctant to get into social media when it first kind of came out, but I was encouraged that it would be a good move as an athlete to help tell story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't really... And I didn't really want to think of a handle. And that was the only one that came to mind. And I for sure in the back of my mind was hoping Nike would pick me up. Was, oh, for uh, sure. That's what I'm thinking too. And if they don't, you should still do either Just Do It or Josh Do It and then just do like a backwards Nike swoosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't the Paralympic Agitos kind of like a Nike swoosh? I could just like put them up over the logo or whatever. Uh, and for sure. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't get in any trouble whatsoever. Nope. Yeah. We're totally on just legal ground here. <laughs> I've got the Aguitos though, just as a fun little segue, right? This symbology, like it's, I feel like it's a beautiful logo that's there for, for those that are listening akin to the Olympic rings. And so that's the, the symbol for the Paralympic movement and each Aguito represents mind, body, and spirit. That is cool. Very progressive. That's I great, love yeah. I love that, right? Like we we're talking about nuances of yeah. verbiage that we need to move away from. Yeah. And I feel like they've done a really good job, the International yeah. Paralympic Committee. Yeah. In mind, body, and spirit. That's what it's about. What does the Paralympic spirit mean to you? How would you define that? Or the Paralympic movement, if that if spirit's too too broad. Well, I you know, like in itself, the the Paralympic movement is transformational and transcending of the body and it's a community of athletes that have had to overcome great barrier in order to make it to the field of play and i know most athletes don't want to even recognize that uh inspiration no 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 we're just athletes but the reality is if you open your eyes is we've all had to overcome and so do able-bodied athletes for that matter whether it's physical or emotional trauma that they've endured to make the olympics it's less seen or heard or talked about. It's a little more visible in the Paralympic stream, but it's a beautiful thing. And I feel that sport has allowed me to transcend the body and connect to something a little bit deeper and maybe back to that kind of shamanistic approach, like a deeper connection with nature where I'm no longer in my body, no longer in my sit ski, no longer on the snow ski, but it is my creative force flowing through or the creative force flowing through me and into the snow and through the mountain. And Mm. those are those present moments that I think athletes are so fortunate to be able to experience. And maybe not just athletes, artists and musicians and people that get lost in those moments. It's a beautiful space. I think the Paralympic movement facilitates those opportunities to transcend and transform and realize that we're more than the, the human body alone. Okay, one more question I just wanted to ask. So back to Ellen. <laughs> I like Ellen. What was that like? And did you get to chat with her off camera like that didn't air or was it just a quick interview and then you were kind of ushered out? She was awesome. First off, amazing. I feel like she was genuine, kind, caring, empathetic, and very present to the moment. So I'm a big fan as well. I can't say that I was before. I wasn't much into daytime talk shows, but uh, following her story and getting to know her a little bit more through that experience, um, have such a deep appreciation because there's somebody who might not live with a physical disability, but has overcome major barriers in her lifetime and a ton of challenge in order to get to where she is in the world today. And now she gives it all back. At least that's how I experienced my time with her. Mm -hmm. She had been elevated to this great position of celebrity with incredible resource. 
and just making her best effort to give that back and elevate others around her. I didn't have a lot of time with her off of screen. I think what you see on YouTube is very abbreviated. Um, what was live on TV was like maybe a 10 minute interview. And in total, I probably had 20 minutes between commercial breaks and oh. the, the actual on air interview. And she was wonderful. And did you get to sit in the crowd for the rest of it? No, no. I was in the green room or green room to start and absolutely, absolutely terrified. And I can say more scared than I was on the top of the end run for the backflip, more scared than I was on the top of any Paralympic or X Games or World Championship start gate. Out of your and comfort zone. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, I've been in lots of interviews. Like that's <laughs> not, nothing is big for sure. Uh -huh. But um, here's a funny way the universe works in divine intervention, if you will. I was behind the green room or behind the doors. And it's the doors that Ellen comes out of, not the regular guest doors, because okay. the the chair, right? It was, there's stairs everywhere else. And they're like, well, I guess you're going to have to use this door. And I was like, fine, whatever. And I'm behind there. And of course, I should have had my phone turned off, but stupid over here didn't have his phone turned off. <laughs> and uh, it's literally like one minute and the red lights flash in and then I'm like, oh, it's bushy. And he calls. And this is a week after, not even a couple of days after the backflip. And he's like, bro, I just want you to know that it was Sarah's dream to be on Ellen. Aww. And she's so pumped right now. She's going to be up there smiling mm. and just like oh, go man. out there and have a great time, man. And then Aww. suddenly like, all of my anxiety and stress just melted away. Aww. And it's like, there's no way that he knew that I was there. And it was like 30 seconds, mm. 15 seconds. I'm like, I gotta go, Bushy. Gotta go. I love you, dude. Oh, man. And oh, that's so dropped cool. The, dropped the phone and uh, went on stage. And of course, I was still obviously jacked up with the, the adrenaline of the moment. And also just that serendipitous moment where Bushy, you know, gave me this levity and perspective on, on mm. the world, if you will. And so Ellen's like, so tell me about the backflip. And I'm like, oh, you know what? <laughs> Before we get into that, I just want to mm. thank you so much for inviting me here today. Uh, and I just threw yeah. some community at her and some, some good manners. And that allowed me to settle down. Yeah. yeah. That allowed her to settle into the moment. And then mm -hmm. we just had a super fun conversation. Amazing. Oh, that's so cool. That's such a cool story. I teared up. We tried to see her once. There weren't any tickets available. It was Remembrance Day or Veterans Day in the States. And Jennifer Aniston was the surprise guest. And everybody got an Apple Watch. But we didn't get in. Okay. What? I'm not what? bitter about it or anything. <laughs> I wanted a new car and I got a cool jacket with a freedom tattoo on the, nice. the middle of it, which was way better than a new car. But I was oh, like, come cool. on, new car. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of it, my story was projected to half a billion people. That's crazy. Yeah. 500 she... million people in the span of six months through all the different wow. agencies that re retold the story after being on Ellen and the story of the backflip. Wow. And then the countless, I don't want to say fan mail that came out of it. But the letters of affirmation in terms of the power of storytelling, yeah. I think uh, this one young mom in New York City who had a, a brain, I don't, I want to get it wrong, maybe aneurysm during childbirth. And then she was in a coma for like a year and then came out paralyzed from the neck down. Like it was just this very difficult story and she had lost hope. And then she saw glimpses of my story that resonated with her spirit. And she's like, I'm going to find a way to go bungee jump. And I'm going to find mm. a way to do these awesome mm. things with my two amazing daughters. And I'm not going to let this disability get in my way anymore. And so whatever happened in that interview with Ellen and however she, however Ellen evoked people the way she does and my story in that moment, the way it, it elevated so many people, that that's the win. Eh? Like I oh, went in yeah. for a car and I came out with a heart full of joy. Like yeah. I must've been the Grinch, eh? 
And his heart grew three times that day. Mm. <laughs> That's so That's cool. Amazing. I remember seeing you on there long ago. Was that 2012 then, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it, it was right after. Like, the video dropped on Monday and Ellen, literally Ellen called me on Tuesday. But it was Ellen's assistant, also by the name of Ellen. And I'm like, is this some kind of sick joke? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, me. I get it all the time. So they were quick, 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 quick. quick. Wow. To, uh, get us on air. That's awesome. You flew out there and did Lacey get to go too? You did, yeah. Oh, so fun. I'm just living vicariously through you right now in the past. Yeah, so Julie, Julie's caught up in the element, which is awesome. My mind goes to competing for Canada in the Vancouver Games. That I mean, this is a huge moment. 88 Olympics to find us in these games in Canada to find us and to represent and get on the podium. How was that experience for you? It, it was a lot. Obviously, very exciting to be able to compete at home in front of so many friends and family and to be a part of the buildup as well. I, I was fortunate enough to be torchbearer during the, uh, the buildup oh, wow. to the Olympic Games and then watch some of my friends compete at the Olympics and then finally was given an opportunity uh, or maybe I guess you could say earned an opportunity to compete at the games. Nerve wracking for sure. And back mm -hmm. to my sports psychologist who helped me overcome a barrier. And I don't even know what else to say, but just like literally I was uh, running out of breath in the start gate. And, you know, you could hear the crowd of 10,000 going, Kimberly burning, do it, bump, bump. Uh -huh. And suddenly just like you're hyperventilating. And, mm -hmm. and he reminded me of this very simple technique to just inhale and exhale and mm. we do it all the time, but to do it intentionally is a different story. Mm -hmm. And he's like, just ask yourself this. What do you think the crowd wants of you in this moment? And I'm like, well, to have fun, to express my joy for the sport, to go fast and whatever else. I don't know. And he's like, okay, now just inhale that energy from the crowd coming up right now. Mm. Hold on to it. Let it sink in. And then as you exhale, very intentionally send it back to everybody in the crowd. Yeah. Breathing. It's such a powerful tool in managing our energy and connecting us to something that's greater than ourself. Mm -hmm. And so another way to look at it is I felt like I was a 60 watt light bulb jammed into a 120 watt <laughs> circuit or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I was blowing up <laughs> too much energy, too much energy for sure. All the best energy, but it's still circuit mm -hmm. overload. And uh, so fortunate that I had John beside mm -hmm. me. Amazing. Yeah, Lowell talks about me. breathing a lot too. Even the difference between each nostril. <laughs> mm -hmm. Breath. Does Lacey get super nervous or did she get really super nervous when you competed? She was definitely holding a lot of space in Vancouver for both of our families and uh, kind of herding cats, if you will, making sure that oh. everybody was taken care of back to her general MO. Yeah. yeah. And so probably nervous for me, but also just holding that space for so many people. Yeah. In, in Sochi, for sure, she actually videotaped herself uh, in one of these days. I'll probably crack that footage out for old time's sake. Um, videoed herself while I did the downhill. And uh, yeah, she was for sure gripped, nervous, and then elated after the run. With the backflip, yeah, she was definitely very much feeling the tension of the day and I think holding that space for me. So she'd never outwardly say, oh, I'm nervous. But you, you look back and you're like, yeah, she was definitely. Oh, sorry, Lil, should I not that. tell you when I'm nervous? Because he, he's like cool as a cucumber and I feel physically sick. I'm so nervous. <laughs> 
Yeah, nerves. Uh, nerves He's aren't one fine. of my no. Ugh. Anyways, my main things. I'm so uh, I feel lacy there. I get amped up. I get so focused with the energy, and I love it. I just to to feel freedom is another one of my words too. This to feel free to be on the bike, to be able to race, to be able to do what I do, and, and that you're doing it on a tandem bike that you share with this partner who yeah. you have such a trusted relationship with. So, anyways, yeah, I'd have the the dream of doing a Winter Olympics. I got scouted to try the uh, para Nordic skiing. And they told me I have a really big engine and no skill. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I imagine it's easier to develop skill than it would be to redevelop an engine. But it uh, yeah. sounds like maybe post-cycling career, you can pick it up. Do it as a, a recreational activity for now, and you never know what's around the corner. That's right. It's a beautiful <laughs> sport. Mm-hmm. Now, how can people follow along with you? Are you open for speaking gigs if people are looking for you on your website? Oh, yeah. Absolutely love the art of storytelling and connecting my story with different groups whenever possible. So the easiest way is to to track me down through my website, joshduke.com. And let us know when you write that book. Yeah, yeah. I think of it often these days. So I feel like that's a pretty good indicator that I need to clear some space off my desk and dedicate some more time to pen to paper. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We'd love to read it. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Your story in general is cool, but you have all these side stories and backstories and wisdom. It's just been so fun talking to you. So thank you for making time for us today. Yeah, and good luck as you lead the team to Beijing. Yeah. And you as well as you uh, lead your campaign towards Tokyo. Thank you. Yeah, here's here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank really appreciate your time. And until we see each other in real life after this whole pandemic thing's done, it's been great to connect with you through Zoom. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Have a good afternoon. You too. <laughs> Bye. Okay, cheers. Whoa, Josh Duick. What a character. He is a cool dude. Oh, my goodness. It was so nice to talk to him. We're really enjoying this process of getting to know different Paralympians, different athletes, and getting the sense of what is behind their story. Their stories are so important and so powerful, but there's this mindset, there's this way of living, of being, and all the lessons that they've learned from their obstacles. It's been pretty humbling for us on this side, and hopefully it's it's powerful for you listening at home. Oh yeah, and we went longer than normal with Josh, so let's keep this end part quick so that we don't have to edit out any of his stuff, and we'll just let him do all the all the talking for himself in there. Yep. So we hope you take away a lot from Josh's story, um, his mindset, and make sure you're following the Beijing Paralympic movement as he leads the team to great heights next year. And his Instagram handle is at JustDuick. That is J U S T D U E C K. Thanks again, Josh. Great. Thanks, Josh. Until next time. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world-class competition and you'd like to be on our show, please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod. That is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can, J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.